0: There you got my stories. Just ask a woman. There you got my stories. there you got my You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Many of us already know that the world is biased in favor of men. We've been told about patriarchy many times over. But what does this mean in real life? In her new book, Invisible Women. Carolyn Criado Perez finds that everything from transportation systems to medical devices and treatments to tax structures, even smartphones, are made for men, not women. And this is more than just inconvenient. It can be deadly. Cars built for men are more dangerous for women to drive. Not understanding women's heart attack symptoms means we're more likely to die. And not understanding how certain chemicals or drugs impact the female body versus the male body is similarly dangerous. The list goes on. Caroline is a British writer, campaigner, and consultant. She won the Liberty Human Rights Campaigner of the Year Award 2013, and in 2015 she was named an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honors. In order to learn more about Caroline's research and what she calls the data bias in a world designed for men, I spoke with her over the phone from her home in London. Here is that interview. You became very well known rather quickly in kind of a strange way. Um, back in 2013, you campaigned for what sounds like something rather innocuous to me, which was to get a female historical figure on banknotes, and you experienced a really shocking backlash i wonder Mm -hmm. if you can tell me first why you started that campaign and then what happened to you as a result
1: so the campaign started because the bank of england announced that um they were going to remove the only female historical figure on the back of our banknotes and replace her with winston churchill and that meant that there was going to be an all male lineup on the back of banknotes. And I really just thought it was an, it, it was so clearly an, a stupid oversight um, or that was, that was what I assumed because it was just clearly such a stupid idea. Um, why would you have an all male lineup? I just felt like they clearly hadn't thought this through. So um I, really didn't expect to have to campaign very hard for it i did set up a petition um but i i sort of naively thought that the bank would just say oh well um thanks for bringing this to our attention um whoops <laughs> <laughs> and uh and we'll sort it out um but it developed into this sort of quite uh intense um three-month campaign where the bank of england were um uh, basically stonewalling and refusing to um admit that they'd done anything wrong um and eventually we sort of thought we were going to have to get legal about it and we had I had the most bizarre experience of exchanging legal letters with the banks incredibly expensive lawyers who I were behaving in a way I didn't know lawyers behave which was not answering straight questions um sort of obfuscating um it was it was a it was a steep learning curve anyway eventually they caved because it was clearly a very stupid thing to have done um, in fact, they caved just after we had a Canadian takeover at the top of at the, uh, the top of the bank of England hmm. <laughs> um, so um I don't know what you make of that um but anyway, so then they they said that they were going to put Jane Austen on the back of the ten pound note and that um and for me, this was the more important bit. I mean, obviously, the symbolic win of having Jane Austen was very important. But um, for me, it was always about their selection criteria and the procedure for choosing the banknote uh, characters. Um, and that was a very, uh, you know, they call them their objective selection criteria, but they were so skewed towards what success looks like for a man. So, for example, good name recognition. Well, no one's ever heard of any women because we write them out of history. Um, good artwork. Same thing. We don't have good artwork for women before about 10 minutes ago. Um, and not contentious. Well, <laughs> that is also much more difficult for women because women have such a, a, a much more narrow parameter of acceptable behaviour. So, there's all these reasons. They sound objective, but actually, they you know when you read them you're like well obviously you're only going to end up with white men if, if those are your selection criteria so they they agreed to change the way that they chose the banknote characters so the idea is that this should never happen again that they'll never end up with an all white male well it is currently all white but there's a new character coming up and people are pushing for it to be a person of color um so we'll see how that goes anyway sorry it was a much longer response than you were expecting i'm sure um So what happened after that is the day after the bank announced that Jane Austen was going to be on the back of the £10 note, I got my first ever rape threat. Hmm. And it was quickly followed by my second and my third and my fourth and my fifth. And eventually I had to stop counting. I don't know how many rape and death and mutilation threats I received. Um, But basically for about three weeks, I was just being completely swamped. By this relentless horde of people telling me um, in very graphic detail how they were going to rape, mutilate, torture and kill me. Um, And it was uh, absolutely terrifying Um, because I mean obviously I've never experienced anything like that before and um you know I didn't know who these people were uh I didn't know how many people there were I didn't know what they were capable of um I remember one tweet very vividly where the person was sort of uh making a joke out of the fact that it could be someone I I know and you know that just really hit me because I thought well it could be someone I know I don't know who these people are um and um, there, it, I sort of have always felt a bit ridiculous about this, um, but I couldn't stop thinking about this journalist who got shot and murdered on her doorstep in, in Britain called Jill Dando, um, and they've never found her killer. Uh, and every time I stepped out the door, you know, I sort of thought about her and I, and I felt a bit less ridiculous about it when I talked to a friend of mine, Laura Bates, who. Uh, started everyday sexism and she said exactly the same that she had also when she was getting rape and death threats thought of Jill Dando which made me feel less ridiculous um but yeah the eventually the police got involved and a couple of people were arrested but um you know the vast majority were never found um and one uh one person the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, declined to um, prosecute for having uh, basically stalked me. You know, he uh, did a whole bunch of YouTube videos about me, set up all these different accounts on Twitter where he was just tweeting obsessively about me and my movements, wrote all these blogs where he dug up, you know, who my family were and all sorts of addresses that were linked to me and was tweeting about how he bought a gun and how much death it was going to buy him. Um, You know, this guy terrified me. Um, And basically the CPS said they they weren't going to prosecute because um, I didn't seem scared when I went on Newsnight, um, which is the sort of the BBC sort of flagship political TV um, discussion show Um, every weekday evening um and and therefore this guy couldn't have known that i was scared and could make the argument that he was uh, just engaging in healthy debate um which <laughs> i'm still furious about
0: mm-hmm. what do you think inspired this like really extreme reaction just to this just to one female historical i know figure being placed on a banknote <laughs>
1: So obviously I have thought about that a lot because, you know, it is completely bizarre and, and it's all totally out of proportion with what I was asking for. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be something more to it than simply about being really angry (laughs) about a line drawing on a piece of paper. You know, there must be more to it. And what I have always felt is that, um, It comes from a place of fear of a certain type of man who feels that um, by women uh, starting to push more into the public space um, that it, it, it causes a sort of existential crisis for a type of man who is so wedded to the idea of masculinity that we as a society have built up and promoted for you know millennia or however long this version of masculinity has existed um which is predicated on being occupying the public space and subjugating women you know those and and, then power you know those things are what masculinity is about and so then if you have women challenging that because what it is to be a woman has I think expanded, you know, obviously there's a huge way to go, um, but what it is to be a woman has expanded, I think, more than what it is to be a successful man has, um, and, and and I suppose that's because, you know, for women it's expanded to take in a certain range of male behaviours, you know, not too, not too many, because. Um, you know, otherwise that would make us bossy and shrill and unattractive and all these other terrible mm. things, but we are allowed to have a little bit beca- and and that's okay because it's trading up and that's what people want, but men have not expanded because that would be to trade down because they have only got, you know, the feminine sphere to, uh, to enter and, you know, who wants to enter the feminine sphere? It's a terrible sphere. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's I think it's that it's it's the way that gender is presented as a zero sum game and men are at the top and women are at the bottom. And if we, women start encroaching into men's space, that means some men are going to be pushed down into women's space. And men know viscerally that that is not a good thing. Um, and, and I think the reason that it's sort of felt so strongly from, you know, even this tiny, tiny request is that um, it is linked to the way that we represent the world as so heavily male dominated. Um, And as a result, we and and this is women as well, you know, we don't have an accurate idea of what 50-50 looks like, male and female. Mm. You know, we sort of think that what we see is what the world is. But actually, it's about seventy to eighty percent male, which of course is not what the world is. Um, but, but as a result, men start experiencing this as a great inequity. And I always remember this one guy who tweeted me um, during the Jane the the, the banknotes campaign, and um, he said, "But women are everywhere now." In this, just you know, he was so outraged, and of course, you know clearly (laughs) we're not everywhere now otherwise i wouldn't have had to be campaigning so hard for one woman on a banknote right but he felt it that way he experienced it that way um and so i think it's those two things it's a combination of the fact that we have have so long and so and and sort of silently been representing the world um as if we're representing it accurately, but actually representing it as massively male-dominated. So we end up thinking that male-dominated is um, 50-50. And then also this way in which we positioned male as above female and allowed women to rise up a little bit, um, but not at the same time done anything about sort of rehabilitating women, I guess, in the eyes of society, um, so that it is seen very, very um, firmly by men as as um, taking a step down, which I don't think it has to be. You know, I think that if we had a very different world, the kind of things that are seen as uh, womanly and therefore inferior, like um, having emotions obviously men are allowed to have emotions, but only, you know, anger, and that's not an emotion, that's just being a manly man, um, would, would be seen as a good thing. You know, caring would be seen as a good thing. Um, it wouldn't be seen as trading down. But, but in men, it's seen as a sign of weakness because it's seen as something feminine. Again, that's a much longer answer than you probably wanted.
0: No, no, it's great. <laughs> um, I mean, and I think that a lot of people who I guess would maybe disagree with your position or maybe defend, maybe more defend the fact that it has been only men on banknotes and that men have dominated, you know, like statues in public places, the academic canon, literature, music even. You talked about how male composers are far more well-known than female composers. And you know, that, that generally men have been historically more widely celebrated and written about in terms of, like, science, history, and so on and so forth because of meritocracy. So that would be the defense. Like, the idea that, well, men have just done more than women have, so naturally they're going to be represented more often in these particular ways or more, you know, frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you respond to this argument?
1: Well, in a number of ways. So the first point would be that the way the male dominance of literature and history and music um, is out of all proportion to what it was in reality. You know, there have been female composers, there have been female writers, there have been female painters, many of them incredibly successful in their own time. The issue is that they get written out of history um, or their work gets attributed to a man. So Judith Leyster, for example, was the first woman to be admitted to an artist guild in um, the 1600s in in, in Holland. Um, And when she died, her work got attributed to her husband. And we're only just rediscovering this. And this is just something that when you look into history, into women's history, you just find again and again and again uh, Fanny Hensel, Mendelssohn's sister, her work was attributed to him. Um, uh, you know, the 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 sort of examples from the science world are just legion. You know, the, the, the number of women who've had their work attributed to their male supervisor um, is just outrageous. Um, or not even necessarily their male supervisor. One story I came across that I just found so shocking was um, this guy. Uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan, uh, who is uh, attributed with having discovered that sex is determined by biology rather than by environment, um, when actually it was this woman called Nettie Stevens who did these experiments on mealworms. And there was actually in existence correspondence from Thomas Hunt Morgan to Nettie Stevens to say, please, can you tell me about your experiments? And despite this, uh, science textbooks have routinely attributed the discovery to him rather than to her. Um, So that's the first argument against it is that actually, you know, even if you accept that, which I don't, um, there are so many more women that we should be celebrating. Second of all, there are enough women actually to have it 50-50, you know? Like there are so many incredible women that we just don't know about compared to mediocre men that we do know about um and 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 so it's not like there aren't enough women to 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 do this there certainly are um there are too many women you know there are six thousand female composers in the in the sort of encyclopedia of women of women composers, and this isn't just a little two bit. Composers who sort of wrote the ditty here and there. These are women who lived off their um, their work and who were acclaimed in their own day. And again, got written out of history. One woman I'm thinking of in particular is Barbara Strozzi, who had more um, work uh, out there than any other composer, male or female, of her time. Again, this was in the 1600s. But because she was a woman, um, you know, she didn't have the the social um, or financial position to be able to uh, ensure her legacy in a way that a man would so a man would be able to you know the there's, there's this amazing book um, by a woman called Anna Beer called Sounds and Sweet Airs, which is about forgotten female composers and she talks about Barbara Strutzi and compares her to the um, uh, this this guy who sort of ran the Venice, chapel or something like that and basically you know he had the money to pay for an archivist to uh, keep his work together and also to pay for a mass that he wrote to be played every year on the anniversary of his death and and he had not just the money but also the social standing because of the position that he held that wasn't a position that was open to Barbara Strozzi who was a courtesan Um, so you know there's all these structural issues that not only prevented women from being able to uh, achieve things that men were able to, to achieve, but also that prevented them from being able to ensure that they weren't forgotten. Um, so that's, that's the first issue uh, and the second issue. And the third one, um, The third one, I suppose, is, is about, you know, what we, what we want to remember and what we think is, is important. Um, and if you look at statues, you know, basically what we seem to think is important is war. Um, and I'm not convinced that that is the most important thing that has ever happened in history. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that constitute the human experience that are not to do with war. And so it's also about what 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 are we choosing to celebrate? And we are choosing to celebrate things that uh, men were engaging with because men are the ones who are choosing what to celebrate. You know, it's a sort of vicious circle so basically that argument is bullshit <laughs> it's my is my is my position um i actually just one more thing to say on that which is that i um uh you know is is the the idea that the most important thing is that we celebrate the most incredible leaders the most powerful people and that the idea of representing women on an equal basis to men is secondary somehow to this meritocracy argument. And actually, I just don't buy that. I think that, you know, the world isn't going to fall apart because uh, some man didn't get to have a statue of him. However, it does have a big impact on women and the way we see the world to only be representing men in statues and on banknotes and um, you know I think that it's also it's it's about a a shift in in perception you know I think a lot of people hold on so strongly to this idea that um, we must celebrate this particular kind of person and it doesn't matter who that person is I think they'd change their tune if it suddenly just happened to be that only black women had ever been the people that fulfill whatever this criteria is you know i think suddenly people would discover that well meritocracy is a terrible thing and actually diversity is very important um but uh you know i i think actually there is merit for itself of of diversity um, and that that is actually a very important consideration when we start talking about who we're going to celebrate and who we're going to represent because this is about representing humanity and this is about inspiring people and this is about teaching us about our history you know if you're talking about school curriculum um and you're not only teaching white men you're teaching everyone um and so the history of women is just as relevant and important and i would argue that you know the history of ordinary people let's say is perhaps a more interesting and possibly actually more relevant to um, children today than you know in the UK, let's say Henry VIII and all his wives. I mean, it's just not really that important anymore to know about Henry VIII and his wives. Um, in the same way as like it's there's not any more important certainly than talking about let's say what um, what power did women hold in that era. You know, did were they able to divorce? Were they able to escape abusive relationships? Uh how did they were they able to work? Um those questions are just as important and just as interesting, and I would argue more so, certainly from my perspective, I'd have been much more interested learning about that than the Reformation. Yeah,
0: right. But anyway, that's yeah, just my fair opinion. enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> Yeah, there's also there's also the fact that of course women were kept out of the public sphere. So the meritocracy argument is particularly frustrating in that regard, not only because it is ignoring the important things that women were doing, but also that it's like, well, you intentionally kept women out of politics and out of universities and out of science and then claimed mm. that women weren't doing anything worth talking yeah. about. So yeah. there's that. Um, I, I wanted to move on to this this thing of men being seen as the norm and mm-hmm. there's like such immense ways in which that impacts women and one of the more surprising discoveries outlined in your book was the way that even something as seemingly gender neutral as snow clearing was in fact Mm -hmm. (laughs) being done based on men's lives and it was impacting women's lives negatively. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you discovered around the sexism of snow clearing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know. I mean, I just sort of, I, I wondered about putting that in because you just know that it's going to be picked up by people in bad faith and say, God, she's even saying snow clearing is dead. <laughs> but you know what? Snow clearing is dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, it's because uh, men and women uh, tend to have different ways of traveling. Um, and that is because men and women uh, have different um Amounts of unpaid care work to do, basically. So th- it was in a town in Sweden called Karlskoga, and they decided to do a gender audit of all their local government policies, obviously, because it was Sweden. I mean, basically, what this book taught me is I need to move to Sweden. Um, but uh, yeah, so they did a gender audit of all their policies, and when they looked at the snow clearing, um, they found that the order in which they were clearing snow was biased towards male typical travel patterns. So men are more likely to drive and they're more likely to do just a simple twice-daily commute in and out of work on major roads. Women, uh, because they tend to both have less money than men, but also in in households with a car, um men tend to dominate access to that car um women are more likely to use public transport um so they're more likely to walk um but also, not only do they use public transport they also have much more complicated travel patterns um because they're more likely to do this type of travel which is called trip chaining which is basically a bunch of short interconnected trip trips so dropping the kids off at school before they go to work uh picking up the groceries on the way home maybe dropping in on an elderly relative. Um, and they are more likely to be doing this by public transport. And because they're not just doing a, uh, a sort of commute um, on a, uh, because they're doing this sort of complicated manoeuvring around, they are using pavements and local roads, basically, more than men. And so because they were clearing the the major roads first, and then the local roads and the sidewalks, um, they were privileging male, typical male travel patterns. So they decided to switch it up because they figured, well, it's uh, easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than it is to push a buggy through three inches of snow or a wheelchair or indeed to walk. Um, and it wouldn't cost them any more money. Um, but to their surprise, they found that not only did it not cost them any more money, it also ended up saving them A lot of money, because the admissions to accident and emergency um, suddenly decreased significantly. uh, Basically, because uh, women were not falling over and hurting themselves at such high rates anymore, Um, which of course is pretty obvious when you come to think of it. But you know, they they hadn't thought of it, and um, and and the cost, you know, in some towns was measured as upwards of three times as much uh, as as winter road maintenance. So this wasn't, you know, a small amount of money we were talking about. It was a huge amount of money. Um, anyway, I just find that example so fascinating because the there's so many ways that they could have got to this conclusion. I mean, one way would have been to wonder why so many women are turning up at accident emergency um, with much more serious injuries than than the men who turn up um who as a result of falling during icy conditions and then you know got to it through that route um, but it basically for me that um that story perfectly encapsulates a why you need to be collecting sex disaggregated data, and b why you need to be designing your policies not based on quote unquote common sense, which tends to be just. Um, what seems easiest to historically the men who have been coming up with these policies Um, but they need to be actually evidence based and based on evidence that has taken into account men and
0: women so yeah so it turns out that
1: and it'll save you money (laughs) turns out feminism great cost saving
0: exercise (laughs) well that's it then (laughs) we're all good (laughs) (laughs) we're all set Um, so it turns out that even the most neutral seeming things are not neutral at all and of course lately there's been a push to make bathrooms gender neutral and it turns out that Mm -hmm. even that actually benefits men not women Um, so like even just the fact of trying to treat washrooms in a like 50-50 way so the same amount of washrooms, stalls, space etc for women and for men that sounds fair (laughs) And, but in yeah. reality, even that ends up not being fair to women.
1: Well, the gender neutral thing is really interesting, I think, because so often it actually isn't gender neutral at all and is just hiding a male bias. And, and just to return to the point I was making about, you know, the men who sent me rape and death threats, um, I don't think that you can separate the male anger at female encroachment into what is seen as male space from the way that we have dishonestly been presenting uh, things that are for men um, as gender neutral, everything from, you know, one size fits all clothes, which are actually designed for men to thick pens, which it turns out are designed for male hands who knew um, uh, to, you know, medication, which is presented as gender neutral or, or, or you know, the, the language that we use when we're using gender neutral terms and it turns out most people are picturing men. The world is just full of these examples of where gender neutral actually means men. Um, but because we present it as gender neutral, uh, we don't acknowledge that. And that's incredibly dangerous because it means that a lot of men, uh, particularly you know men who are in power, but also men who are angry, um, they they sort of have um, fuel to this sort of sense of agree, uh, agreement that they feel because they, you know, I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've come across this. If you ever say, uh, why weren't women mentioned in this report, for example, you will always have some guy piping up. Oh, well, men weren't mentioned in this report either. Um, because we don't have to mention men because they go without saying. um so, I mean, one of the things that I always say that we need to do, sorry, I know I've completely moved off your point of birth and we can come back to them <laughs> if you okay. want, but um, it, it, we have to move away from allowing men to occupy the default gender neutral space because it's it's doing massive harm to women and it and it is hiding this huge issue of male bias that we have. And it is also making it much harder for us to address it because we're not being honest about it. And if you don't, Make something visible, you can't tackle it, and so I, I I always encourage people to start marking the male you know don't allow male to occupy the default space if you mean male, say male. if your research uh, study was all on men, have that in the goddamn title if you mean men 's sport, if you mean men 's football say men 's football don't don't say football or rugby when you mean men 's football and men 's rugby. Um, and these all seem like little things and they are which means it's very very easy to fix them but they can add up and I think that they would be so helpful in producing a much more accurate, accurate ref- reflection of reality in terms of an accurate reflection of what we are talking about when we're talking gender neutrally because nine times out of ten we're talking about men mm-hmm.
0: and so how does
1: anyway I can tell you about the bathroom
0: yeah let's talk want. about the bathroom <laughs>
1: Like So, so basically, it's, it is it is a great example of how the idea of treating everyone the same uh, doesn't necessarily result in uh, treating everyone uh, equitably. So um, because people have different needs and um, historically it has been sort of encoded in plumbing codes that you have 50-50 floor space for male and female Uh, bathrooms Um, but that means that men get much more provision than women because male bathrooms have urinals Um, and you can get far more men peeing in a urinal than you can have women in cubicles so that's the first thing the second thing is that uh, a huge number of women will be on their period at any given time which means they're going to take longer because they have to you know change their tampon or their moon cup or whatever it is uh, women are also much more likely to be accompanied by children, um, which again makes it likely that they're going to take longer um, or by an elderly or a disabled person. So basically the result of all of this is that women take um, up to 2.3 times longer than men going to the loo. So we take longer for the reasons I've mentioned above and we have less provision despite the fact that it looks like we have equal provision because of equal floor space. So basically women need more space, they need more floor space in order to have equal provision. And even then it wouldn't quite be right because women take longer. Um, And then finally, you've got this sort of farcical situation where, as you say, there is this um, trend towards turning things gender neutral, but it's done in the most thoughtless way. So there was this amazing example where um, Samira Ahmed, who is a journalist in the UK, um, tweeted at Barbican, which is a a sort of concert and theater venue, um, to say that they had turned their um, toilets gender neutral, but actually what they had done was they'd turned them, they they hadn't done anything about the toilets themselves. They had just changed the signage from male and female to gender neutral with urinals and gender, gender neutral with cubicles. And of course, it was clear what was gonna happen there because what men, what that just doubled the provision for men. So men were using both the gender neutral with urinals and the gender neutral with cubicles, but the women weren't using the gender neutral with urinals because women don't really wanna go into a room and see a line of men peeing. Um, it, it's just <laughs> and then on top of that, to add insult to injury, to show that they clearly realized that women weren't going to use those, those toilets. They didn't even put sanitary bins in the gender neutral with urinals. So like the whole thing was just so appallingly ill thought through. Um, and I actually went and I looked at the board of, uh, of uh, people at the Barbican and, and guess what? <laughs> There's not many women on that board. Um, I know you'll be staggered to hear that. Um So, you know, they they basically did the opposite of what needs to happen. So the queue was just out of, you know, snaking out of the building, basically. Um, And, you know, when when I sort of think about that, it sort of seems like this petty thing. But actually, as a woman, I feel like my life is in many ways defined by, am I going to be able to find a toilet? Um, Because women oh I mean that's another issue women actually need to go more often than men um and women are more likely to be suffering from urinary tract infections
0: well and also I mean Um, men not that I'm advocating for this but men really you know pee outside a lot (laughs) and women can't just like go walk (laughs) into an alley and pee they need an actual washroom (laughs) it's um, you know like and the thing is Oh, Oh I was just going to (laughs) say, now I'm just talking about me. It's like, you know, if you go for, (laughs) if you go for, you know, like a a walk or a hike in the woods, for example, um, I also, I mean, I, I, I think maybe I have a small bladder. I don't know if that's a real thing, but I have to pee a lot and I drink a lot of water. And so if I'm going for a walk in the woods with like my boyfriend, he, if he has to, go to the washroom he can just go behind a tree whereas I don't really have yeah. any options because you know there's other people walking around on the trails and there's not washrooms around right. So I mean that's like one example but I think there's probably lots of examples yeah. where women can relate to that where they just need access to yeah. washrooms much more than men do I mean
1: any woman who's ever been to the cinema or the theater or a concert or anywhere where there's a huge number of people um and then there's an interval And you know how you're going to be spending the interval if you're a woman, you know, you're going to be in the queue. Um, And there is this sort of sense of solidarity in the queue. But we would rather not be there. You know, we'd be rather hanging out with the men at the bar. (laughs) But instead, we're having to queue up. Um, But, you know, this is this is an issue in the in the Western world. It's like an irritation. And it does, I think, limit women's lives to a certain extent like i i have a I, I have i'm not sure if i should be admitting this but i've realized recently that i have a recurring anxiety dream where i can't find a <laughs> toilet like it's clearly something that's burned into my yeah. psyche um, because it's an issue that i often have totally um, but but you know in 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 countries like india for example or in refugee camps um it's actually a, a lot more serious than that we start we start talking about um you know sexual harassment and and rape um because basically you know the correlation of women who do or don't have an indoor toilet for example or access to a safe toilet and women who are um raped or sexually attacked in some way by um strangers you know there is a direct correlation between the two um and the the um the need for sex um, specific toilets in, um, in well-lit areas, in refugee camps, for example, is so well-documented and yet it's just something that is not standard. Um, same goes for in all sorts of police stations, um, in, uh, in sort of Mumbai slums, it's just the the lack of provision of toy of safe toilets for women is absolutely endemic, and the result is that women are often um, basically uh, putting their health in danger by not drinking or eating enough so that they can last all day without having to pee. Because if they have to pee, um, they are liable to be attacked or um, groped, or you know have you know there are guys who sort of collect. Um, along sort of paths and areas that women are known to use um and it's just you know when i sort of think about the fact that i feel anxious about it um and then you have people women in parts of the world and also as i as i said in refugee camps who have to sort of find a group of other women to go together with for protection um for this just absolutely basic need um mm-hmm. I yeah I feel I'm very evangelical about the need for um female toilet provision. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um I yeah and I wanted to also talk about the way that uh this this male norm or this male standard impacts women at work. And again like the bathroom issue there's sort of smaller issues that just make you know our lives more stressful or more difficult in various ways and then there are bigger things that actually endanger our, our lives and health and things like that. I mm-hmm. mean, so one of the, the small things that is just really, really annoying, and I was really glad to learn that I'm not crazy, but the actual offices are it's you know, it's not just that I'm like a cold person, they're actually cold. (laughs) (laughs) I used to work in offices for a really long time. Um and I was always, you know, I had always had to have like big sweaters with me. Sometimes I would wear toques, like I had to and in the summer, right? You're like wearing pants and sweaters to work and putting on all these extra clothes. And it turns out that the temperature in offices are set for men's comfort. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that, yeah, that's quite an amazing one. Um, so basically, uh, the formula to determine office temperature was, uh, uh, was, was, was developed in the sixties and was based on the metabolic resting rate of a 40 year old man. Um, and it turns out that, uh, the female metabolic rate of you know a woman doing light office work um is a fair amount lower and the result is that the formula that was set is actually 5 degrees too low for the average woman um and that is why you have men feeling very comfortable in an office while women are freezing and wearing loads of jumpers in the middle of the summer mm-hmm.
0: I, I guess I wonder, like, in terms of this this office temperature issue, what the solution is, because I've talked to men about this since I discovered this, and, you know, I've been mm. really annoyed about it, and and they're like, well, what are, <laughs> what are we supposed to do? We're all just supposed to be hot then, so you all can be comfortable? I don't know, I mean... Well, can't we meet yeah, in the middle? Like, you you know? guys can like, wear, like, a t-shirt? How about...
1: Everyone can be uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I just sort of think like women are so cold, yeah. and men, like, don't need to be able to walk around um, like in shirt sleeves in in uh, I mean you know, if they're going to be I'm trying to remember what what will they be? they'll be hot, yeah, they can just like wear a fucking t-shirt. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, like, Um, like
0: if women are in your offices uh, wearing, like, toques and extra sweaters, then surely you can change the temperature a little bit. (laughs) Sure. And, and, you know, there's also
1: a, a climate change argument for this, I would say. So, like, you know, when it there was a really interesting paper about this, about how climate controlled offices, which are set to this male temperature norm, are um, being very very inefficient because you get people fighting over uh, opening the windows and closing the windows, which obviously affects it all. And then you have women bringing in space heaters, um, so it all ends up being horribly inefficient. Um, so you know, coming to some sort of compromise solution. But you're right; like I've had this as well from men saying, "Oh, well, why should I be? Uh, why should I be too hot?" And you know, like don't that's that you know make it the average yeah, yeah it's not choosing women over men it's making it the average and this is the sort of frustration that men get to be the average and women have to be outliers and women are, are not outliers you know we are 50 percent of the population right, like
0: we're supposed to kind of fit ourselves into a society that doesn't fit us and it's it's not often the other way around and i mean right. and you found lots of other and, examples in workplaces in terms of the ways that workplaces cater to, to male bodies, not just in terms of temperature, but, you know, kind of more serious ways. I wonder if you can talk a bit about about that.
1: So basically, the vast majority of occupational health research has been done on both male occupations and male bodies. Um, and even when women were working in those industries where we've done a fair amount of research, uh, the data uh, on the women was um, excluded as a confounding factor. So, which is, you know, feeds into this idea of women as outliers. Basically, it was just seen as um, female data is is just not helpful here. It's just going to mess up the study, which, by the way, is the excuse that gets used for not including women in uh, in medical research. But anyway, so occupational health research has been done on male occupations. and um, And so we know a lot about safe lifting for men in construction Uh, but we know nothing about safe lifting for women in the cleaning industry for example and uh, actually that's a pretty manual job Um, women are doing all sorts of um, you know a cleaner can lift as much or more I think than a construction worker in a single shift probably because construction workers have safe levels developed for them as a result of the research that's been done into the industry whereas women are just expected to heave you know huge um, buckets of water up and down stairs and and that's just seen as well that's just a silly little woman's job so it doesn't matter Um, and uh, uh, and so, and women are are being sort of injured as a result of this and then also it gets worse than that because um women are being exposed to for example all sorts of chemicals in the workplace that have only been tested on men and where the um the safe levels have been determined based on male bodies um but you know women are not men <laughs> and we have things like um uh women tend to have thinner skin than men also more fat in which chemicals can can a, can acu- uh, sorry can accumulate um so there is a lot of uh there is very good reason to think that the levels will be different for women and in fact the research we've done suggests that they are um and yet we continue with these gender neutral levels and continue to not test on women to discover what the safe levels are um And this usually affects, of course, as you would expect, uh, the more vulnerable uh, women in society. So immigrant women, uh, women with insecure jobs, um, because they're the ones who are more likely to be working in the kind of industries that where they're going to be exposed to chemicals. So women working with um, plastics for the car industry, uh, women working in nail bars where there is basically no legislation whatsoever on um, ventilation, even though um women are exposed to acrylic from from nail filing and um you know all sorts of fumes from uh, removers and shellacs and and we've just done no research on how it will affect them but what what has become clear and this is something that actually Canada is as far as i can see the has the is the leading country when it comes to occupational health research, not because of the government, but because for some reason, the researchers who were really working on this seemed to be in Canada. Um, and and one of them is this woman called Anne Rochon Ford, who was working specifically looking at the nail industry. and they realized that um, there were all these women coming to this health clinic. With very similar complaints ranging from dermatitis to infertility, and they sort of thought, you know, what is up with these women? And it turned out they all worked at nail bars. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a scandal, basically. It's a huge scandal. But the problem is because it's happening to women who um, don't have secure employment or often as well secure immigration status, um, it just passes by. Uh, because who's going to speak for them no one's speaking for them and they can't speak for themselves
0: i wanted to talk more about this issue of of well how seeing the male body as the norm impacts women's health because you know you talk about in your book how in the medical field this treatment of the male body... I mean, there's this long, long history of, of treating the male body as the norm. You know, you talk about the way that ancient Greeks saw ovaries as female testicles and the uterus as the female scrotum. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's still going on today. That standard still persists, which it seems so crazy to me. Like, sex differences are still not taken into account often in terms of medical studies and treatments. And, and women's health is still understudied and undertaught in medical school. Um, mm. And males and females, I think people know that like males and females have different body parts, but it, actually our bodies are different right down to the cellular level. How does all this mm-hmm. impact women's health? Well, it impacts it hugely uh,
1: because, you know, as in occupational health, uh, the research just isn't there. Um, and so women suffer from more serious side effects, less effective treatment. Um, you know, the diagnostic tests that are developed for all sorts of things from cardiovascular disease to, uh, TB, um, are designed around the way these diseases appear and progress in men. Um, and so, we, you know, it often gets missed in women. You know, women are more likely to die following a heart attack. And part of the reason for that is that male symptoms are seen as the symptoms, which with female symptoms designated atypical, even though they are extremely typical for women. Um, and then the uh, the sort of main test that... Ha- that Uh, will get used to see if you have a heart attack if if a doctor suggests suspects that you have a heart attack um is looking for blockages and it turns out that actually female heart attacks may not present with blockages in the same way so you know even women who do experience the classic male heart attack symptom of chest pain which in fact only one in eight women will experience will quite likely be sent home with undiagnosed chest pain even though they've had a heart attack And of course then they can go home and they end up dying um one thing that really frustrated me was sort of discovering two things and and sort of putting them in conjunction with each other uh the first being that the um second most common adverse drug reaction in women are the first is nausea um the second most common is that the drug just doesn't work and When you combine that with the way that the vast majority of medicine has been designed and tested on men, um, you sort of think, well, how many medications for women have we missed out on because they just didn't work on men? And to give an example, there was this fascinating study I came across looking at um, how male and female cells would respond to being exposed to oestrogen um, and so they exposed the cells to estrogen and then exposed them to a virus. And the female cell was able to use the estrogen to fight off a virus, and the male cell was not. And, um, you know, just did, the estrogen did nothing at all, and the virus took the cell over. And the vast majority of cell studies are done in male cells. And so there must be hundreds, thousands of drugs that never got past the cell trial stage that were only tested in male cells. And who knows if they would have worked in women? I don't know, but it's certainly, you know, it's suggestive and, and, and just sort of the idea that you shouldn't test in male and female cells is just, uh, there's no way to explain that. (laughs) You know, there's just complete madness. Um, the explanation they give for not testing in female animals and female humans is that, uh, women's bodies are too complicated, um and so it would be too expensive and um this by the way is is an excuse that crops up like you know that's why we don't measure women's travel patterns that's why we don't uh does we don't measure the economy to include women's work um women are always just too complicated to measure um even though that means you end up measuring something that isn't reality and similarly when it comes to drugs And the problem with that, of course, is it's basically condemning women to at the extreme ends to die because, yes, women's menstrual cycles do interact with your nice, clean test, but they also interact with the drugs that you produce at the end of your nice, clean test. And then those drugs can go on to either not work for women, which means that they'll die potentially, or be too strong for women, which means that they'll die potentially, or you know, interact terribly with a woman's hormonal system or her cells or whatever it is, and again, you know, potentially die, depending, of course, on what the drug is. You know, she may just be seriously ill. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it just that argument makes me so angry because it's just putting the ease of the researcher and the expense and the sort of neatness of the test above the test actually saying anything at all about half the world. And I and I think that you know, this really brings it back to this unconscious acceptance that men are the default human, and that women are just some sort of niche, aberrant minority. Um, Because I just don't believe that they would be making that argument otherwise. You know, it's such a it's it's such a clearly illogical argument to say that half the population is too complicated to measure. Um, that the only explanation I can come up with is that they aren't really thinking of women as half the population, and particularly now that we know that sex differences appear all the way down to ourselves, um, and that they can, you know, there are sex differences in the pro, uh, progression and and manifestation of all sorts of diseases. Sex differences have been found in every organ of the body. you know. So the evidence is very, very clear and compelling that sex difference matters when it comes to medical research. And so for people to be arguing that it's too expensive, either they hate women, <laughs> which I'm going to go ahead and say is not the case, um, or they are not really conceiving of women as half the population
0: one thing I found particularly interesting is that you talked about how women are disproportionately affected by conflict pandemic and natural Mm. disaster and I think that we often hear that you know, there's, there's no such thing as women's oppression because men are the ones who have to go and fight and die in war. That's something I've heard a lot. So, like, men have mm-hmm. it much worse than women. This, this whole idea of women's oppression is a lie. But you've actually found that women are more severely affected in many ways by war. I wonder if you can talk about what you found. Well, so it's a couple
1: of things. Um, for a start, women experience all sorts of female-specific... Um, uh, I can't think of the word. Well, women are affected in all sorts of female-specific ways as a result of war. So for a start, domestic violence goes right up in any, uh, in any sort of conflict, um, as does sexual violence. Um, And those are things that are happening to women. Um, And they often happen happening systematically. You know, rape as a weapon of war has become a pretty normalized part of modern warfare. It's just a thing that happens. Um, And it happened in Syria and it happened in Rwanda and it happened in uh, Kosovo. Um, And, you know, these are millions of women being systematically raped um, as a way to uh, sort of conduct psychological warfare upon uh, the opponents, um, the male opponents, they use their women. Um, so that's part of it. Then, of course, as I said, there's the domestic violence and that just goes up in time of conflict. Um, but then also, actually, the majority of people who die in modern conflicts are civilians. Um, it's not the people who are fighting, it's the civilians. Um, and of course, you know, that includes women. So this idea that, um, you know, it's basically a sort of outdated idea of how war happens. It's not, uh, it's not the first world war where people are fighting on the front, on these two fronts. Actually it's um, in cities and, uh, and women and children are being killed. So that is also part of it. But then, you know, it's also that women are uh, being particularly impacted by, the after effects of conflict. So men coming back from having been fighting, um, and being traumatized and visiting that upon the, the women in their lives. So again, the rates of sexual violence and domestic violence, um, remain high, um, because, uh, because of the male fighters coming back and they're not being often, uh, you know, an attempt to rehabilitate them back into normal life. Um, and then, of course, the 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 peace settlements that are often negotiated without any reference to women's rights or women's needs. Um, so both within the war and following the war, women are actually disproportionately impacted by conflict. Um, but because we don't think about that, we, we think of conflict in this very narrow way as these two men fighting each other. And actually, that's just not, a reflection of reality that's a very actually male view of what war looks like um there was this great poem let's see if i can find it um this poem um written by this was actually my last book um but this poem written by this woman in afghanistan um where they wrote these poems they're they're called landai. And they're these two line poems that are passed down from woman to woman and they are spoken because, um, it, I mean, it's a partly a safety thing. And I just always remember this, um this poem, may God destroy the Taliban and end their wars. They've made Afghan women widows and whores. And, you know, that's such a female perspective on war that isn't contained in the way these men who are telling you our women aren't oppressed because men go to war and die you know this is a woman talking about the impact of war on women um and that's something that we don't talk about enough Mm
0: -hmm. i often hear that like you know so sure in the past or in other countries sexism exists but it doesn't really exist anymore in the west of course your book Really shows the opposite, and that these relics of history, supposed relics of history persist, and that the past yeah. erasure of women has hung on in in all sorts of ways today. I wonder what the reaction has been to your book from those kinds of people who who are skeptical of the existence of of patriarchy has there has there been a reaction
1: <laughs> <laughs> um that's a good question. So, definitely, the overwhelming reaction from both men and women has been very positive. And for women, it's been this sort of sense of relief, really, um, that suddenly the world makes sense. You know, that they'd been walking around thinking that they didn't fit, that there was something wrong with them. Um, I mean, one woman tweeted me the other today, the other day, to say she was in tears because she suddenly realised that all this time she'd been feeling inadequate it was it was the trip chaining bit actually that got her um and just it makes me so angry to think about all the women who are going about their lives thinking that there's something wrong with them when actually it's that the world has not been designed to fit them it on a sort of lesser scale it reminds me of how an ex-boyfriend of mine used to laugh at the way I and other women drive that we sit much further forward and, and we have both hands on the wheel and he sort of presented this as something sort of funny women are so silly and incompetent they can't drive in this proper manly way and you know I just sort of in uh took on that shame you know I felt embarrassed that that's what I did and of course since writing this book I've realized that it's because I have a female body and cars are not designed for that body. So you have to sit further forward to reach the pedals and the the wheel to turn it. You know, women have to hold it with both hands. I mean, obviously you're meant to do that anyway. But, but um, also the wheel is too heavy for women to not move with both hands. Um, and 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 then, you know, on top of everything else to realize that it's not just, you know, it's far from being funny. Actually, it makes women... In huge danger, forty-seven percent more likely to be seriously injured and seventeen percent more likely to die. You know, unfortunately, I'm no longer in touch with this ex-boyfriend, but I really want to like ah, make him read the book <laughs> so he can feel bad for having done that. Anyway, sorry. So the question about men. So, um, actually, I've been really pleased by how many men have really approached the book with an open mind and um have recognized that it is offering them a perspective that they didn't know about and made them see the world in a different way, that they hadn't realized basically how much of the world is designed for them. And that has been really heartening. Um, And I know a lot of, you know, a lot of men have got in touch with me to say that they are changing the way they're approaching projects at work and, you know. Interventions and getting people to read the book, and that's been really great. Obviously, I have had pushback from men. And the type of men you describe, I think the issue is that they're not going to read the book because I just think that the case is unanswerable. You know, you cannot read this and come away thinking this is fine, you know, because women are dying. Women are dying in car crashes. Women are dying from medication that isn't designed for us. Women are dying uh from occupationally linked cancers and all sorts of diseases uh it it's just you you can't read this and think that everything is okay now and that women are equal because the stats just speak for themselves the evidence is there and so the men who are not you know coming along with this are men who are refusing to read the book to engage with the book um to actually open their eyes and there's not really much you can do with people like that. Um, you know, if you refuse to actually read something and engage with it in in a good faith way, then I can't do anything with you. You know, what, what can I possibly do? There's nothing I can do. The thing that I have to sort of rely on is that the majority of people are going to engage with the book um, and not just, you know, see, oh, feminist, therefore man-hating, therefore this isn't for me, therefore feminazi or whatever you know um and that hasn't been what I have noticed you know I ha- it has felt like they are a minority um and that most men are actually very open to it and and I think that 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 is kind of what I would expect I mean I say that actually before the book came out I was incredibly nervous about how it was going to get received by men i felt that women would just get it implicitly because it's describing our lives and it is you know it makes sense of how we experience the world and i was concerned that men would be too defensive about it to to engage with it and and would sort of spend their time trying to pick little holes in it to try and undermine the sort of overwhelming argument um well, I mean, I had gone into it writing the book, you know, with that concern. And so I had, you know, made bloody sure that <laughs> that I could stand up my research because of, of, of that concern. Um, but it's been, you know, that's not really been my experience. Obviously, there have been attempts, but on the whole, actually, it makes sense that most people would react like that because most men don't actually, you know, hate women. They love their mums and their sisters and their girlfriends and, you know, and they don't want their mum to get in a car and be at much more risk than they are if she gets into a car crash. And they don't want their mum to die of a heart attack because it wasn't diagnosed by the doctor because she had female heart attack symptoms.
0: Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that the reaction has been so positive and I mean, it's really an incredible book. It must have been so much work, but I'm so glad that you've you've done this this research. It's it's so important. Um, so I guess finally, I wonder how people can get your book. Um, they can buy it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, it's available.
1: Uh, I don't. I don't know. I assume in all good bookstores in Canada. Um, and obviously it's available on Amazon and probably other websites.
0: Okay. Awesome. All over the internet. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You just heard an interview with Carolyn Criado-Perez. Her first book, Do It Like a Woman, was published by Portobello Books in May 2015. Her second book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, was published in March 2019. To learn more about her work, visit carolinecreatoperez.com. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info@feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.